Oh man, in this terrific episode, I interview Mike West, the founder of 686, the technical snowboard outerwear company. And one of my favorite parts in the interview was when Mike emphasized a key decision point of entrepreneurship, which is the importance of not waiting for the perfect time to start a business and learning to be comfortable or courageous enough to just get started and to take the leap. Putting yourself out there and maybe going out and learning at first hand is okay. You will never be ready and everything set to go. You have to be ready, but you will not have everything perfect. So I would have never been able to be where I'm at without taking a chance. And you will give excuses to yourself about why you can't do it. But if you want to try it, try it. And if you don't, it's fine. It's not for everyone. Believe me, there's so much pressure right now to be that, that guy. You don't need to, but give it a try if you want to. Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast, brought to you by VentureSuperfly.com, where we help double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Please visit the Venture Superfly website and check out the contact page to join our mailing list. Today, I'm stoked to interview Mike West, the founder and CEO of 686 Outerwear for snowboarders. He started the brand just out of college with no formal design experience. When you go into many outdoor retailers across the country, you'll see 686 prominently displayed. In fact, our family is a happy customer of 686. All of my three stepkids, Ava, Nadia, and Pierce, wear 686 when they're riding on the slopes, keeping them warm and dry and stylish to boot. Mike also launched Maddox Clothing which is a lifestyle apparel brand stemming from the skateboard and surf culture of Southern California. Mike is a partner in North America's largest action sports and outdoor warehouse fulfillment center called NRI Distribution, where they help distribute leading brands like Electric Eyewear, SurfTech, Outdoor Research, Black Diamond, and many others. And finally, later this year, Mike is planning to launch a new direct-to-consumer apparel brand, called Westwell, which will play in the larger menswear and soon womenswear markets. So stay tuned for that. Mike's a real creative force, that's for sure. So without further ado, let's say hi to Mike West. Mike, thanks for being here and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, when you list all those things up, I don't really realize the things are on my plate, but uh you know, it's been a it's been a great ride, and um, you know, whatever I can do to kind of tell my story, I'm I'm, I'm pretty stoked to do that. And I listed the abridged version. You've got a lot more things going on. I know that that's for sure. So, Mike, there are three segments in this podcast. The first is called "Give Me the Basics," which helps set the context about your companies for our listeners. The second segment is called "Let's Get Personal," 
where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. And the final part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help move them forward. Mike, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions? Let's do it. Fantastic. All right, here we go. Mike, let's start at the beginning. Tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the idea to start 686? I think a lot of my ventures and just what I do is, is really based upon just the feeling, the gut feeling, and, and kind of being the customer myself, right? So back in the day when I, you know, I grew up in Southern California, my whole culture was based upon skateboarding. Street skateboarding, it was this kind of movement and close to like Southern California and Venice Beach particularly where just this uprising of like angst and kind of all the things about what we couldn't do into just this form of expression in the skateboard. So I grew up kind of as a sponsored skateboarder. You know, back then, you weren't looked in the way that you were looked today. People were like, kind of, all those guys on the side, what are they doing? They're, they're creating trouble. And that, that for me, I was kind of a shy kid. So for that, that was my kind of just way of actually getting my expression out. So that kind of eventually led me to meeting people and being in this kind of artist, kind of creative culture. And then, um, you know, and that was probably the mid 80s. And then I kind of transfer that to snowboarding in the local mountains and, and, and became instructor there and kind of just did that while going to school at the same time. So that was kind of my, my foundation of just finding myself and my hobbies and things I was just really passionate about. That's how it all started before I actually started, quote unquote, a business, <laughs> which I do today. Right. And you started with the outerwear component pretty quickly, right? You didn't just start with t-shirts or things like that. Yeah, more or less. I think, you know, like, um, initially spoke about is I didn't initially have any design experience meaning I had to go to school or I learned from someone I I, what I did I guess understood and and when you're young you didn't really understand exactly those sets because you didn't have the tools you have today you know I had a certain eye on something when you have an eye like okay I like that I don't like that and I learned how to kind of maybe communicate that on more of a formatted process so when I was going to school the, the, the few things changed me in terms of like hey um, instructor told me that you can actually do something for a career in the aspects you like to do. And it, it's sim- something as simple as that today. It was really hard to understand. You go to a prestigious school back then, you pay a lot of money, and you have to essentially do what your, maybe your parents were expecting you to do, which is become a professional. You know, And that was not necessarily my mindset back then. So you know, I learned the things I like to do, which is basically back then was just moving, being the mountains and thought about how I can center myself around that. And I thought about creating something and I just did it um, by a speaker and he told me to do this and do that. So I, I got into, I actually did create a hat, a beanie, a t-shirt and a pair of jeans first. The second year I went to creating technical apparel because I realized that you can, you can only get so far in protecting yourself from a t-shirt and a hat when you're in the mountains. Right. And Mike, talk a little bit about what was so unique about 686 when you started it. Apparel is such a tough industry. How did you cut through the clutter early on among so many outerwear and clothing brands that were out there? You know, the interesting thing is, you know, we have so much transparency nowadays. You know, back then, you only kind of knew what was in your little proximity of not even watching your phone and hand and phone, it's more like what you knew locally. And I think that's something that I knew really firsthand because I was the customer. I, I was really passionate about doing this and I wanted to hear what people wanted. So the first step is like, well, let me make something. Let me get the response directly right then and there. 
And it kind of steamrolled. So back then, it's like, okay, wow, you made something. I like it. Where did you get it? And you kind of grassroots kind of guerrilla marketing that way. And then it kind of built. So back then, the competitive landscape was different. The technical landscape was different. So I was, I think, you know, when I speak to some people, it's like the right place and the right time. It was the right time in terms of the industry was growing, which I didn't know. It was ruled mainly mainly by larger companies, but they all kind of started a similar way. And I, I came from an authentic point of view from where I was, what I was about, meaning kind of the city meets the mountain kind of point of view, where my initial concept was, hey, you can actually use this here and there, meaning you can use it in the streets and in the mountains, right? So it's it's very versatile. Well, people kind of appreciate that. It was more this street style, not high tech, very low tech, but very kind of street oriented. So that was kind of my point of view that kind of continued for throughout. So was that one of my success points? I think it was one of them, but it was really the right time and the right place with a point of view that made the difference. And just for some context to our listeners, how many products did you have on the outerwear side when you started producing outerwear, maybe in that second or third year? Did you have two or three jackets and a pair of pants? Did you have more than that? Did you start with less than that? Yeah, it was really specific, meaning, you know, I, I kind of made it for myself and my friends, right? I had a t-shirt, a hat, a beanie, a jean, pair of jeans, and then the outerwear was only an anorak, I mean, an anorak jacket, which was really a poor cut, boxy 90s cut, you know, which is actually back in today, you know, um, and this wide pair of shell pants that you just really, back then, you just protected yourself from getting wet. It didn't really protect yourself from getting, from being cold. Um, so that was the first step. And then the next one really was the game changer, I could say, in, in, in the brand over the 26 plus years is, you know, I took a trip outside Southern California to Banff and British Columbia. It was a realism factor that I realized, that, hey, you know, it's not 40 degrees out and sunny all the time. It was really, really frigid in all aspects. And I go, wow, you really need to actually have some sort of insulation in that pure shell. So I actually brought, I got a pair of sweats, sweatpants, and I put it, I put my shell over it. I put some Velcro on it. I sewed Velcro on my, my, my waist pant. And I go, wow, this is, I, I can actually wear a pair of sweats and it keeps me warm. And then after that, I can actually take my, uh, my snow pants and then wear my uh, sweatpants in a, as a lounger. And that really created the next concept, which is known today, which is our Smarty collection is it's a convertible three in one system here. And we were really the first ones to create this kind of branded three-in-one experience. Um, there was another company, Columbia, you know, that had that, but it was totally not in my realm. I didn't even know about them back in the day. So I, I, we created this new feature called Smarty, which is zip-out, zip-in technology of interchangeable liners, which people related that to, oh, that was a Kleenex or a Coke moment where, like, if you take your liner out, they referred to us as Smarty, which was, you know, I've very learned later on. It's, it's a very powerful thing when people can associate not only your brand, but other people's products to what your name is. And with that three-in-one concept, did that really differentiate you among retail buyers at the time? Did that really sort of get you the traction that you needed? Uh, absolutely. I think that, you know, like if anyone starts something, you know, that when they ask and they go, hey, you know what? What do you want to do? Well, I want to make clothing. What do you want to sell to? I want to sell to everyone. You really, you really need to really have a point of view and really have a certain niche in terms of who you want. And that's what we did is we go, hey, this came from a really first-person point of view in terms of how we discover this, why we related to it, and then this perceived value of going, wow, you can actually do more, more than one specific thing um, was really powerful. And then also we concentrated strictly on pants, not jackets. We didn't do jackets till 
many, many years later. So, and today, you know, quarter of a century plus later, we're the leader and no one else does it in pants, you know? So that really kind of blossomed our company to do other things while we really own one thing. That is really a great little piece to the story. How many employees did you have perhaps in that first year or two? And how many do you have now, just for context? You know, when people ask that, they, they kind of have an assumption towards that is. But back in the day, I mean, you had me and a, and a, and a friend, right? And then my first employee. But those, the, when you do that, you're really you're really searching for people that you you can you feel like you can trust. Not really have the best biggest skill set back then. And then you do everything, right? And, and today, they're still here. The one that's been made for almost the same time, and he's still here. He's the president. And I have a couple others been here for over 20 years. And you know, we all kind of grew up in this realm, and we all really hone our skill set. Um, we have about 20 something people right now, um, but we're really tight, meaning, you know, we were really efficient and we do quite a bit for the assumption of people, how big we are, but we're, we're not that big at all. Sure. But, and you can outsource a lot of that stuff nowadays. Everything's so fluid and, and that really helps out as well. And when I started my outerwear company, I was the one employee for a good few years and we were getting into REI and a lot of semi-large retail chains regionally across the U.S. and you can do a lot with a little, especially the more efficient and effective you can get over time, over each season. Absolutely. Mike, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive if you can think back to the the early days regarding your company's uniqueness in those early days, did your original assumption about that uniqueness prove motivating to consumers or did you discover a different product selling proposition after being in business for a while and getting some customer feedback? You know, it's a little bit of both. I, I, we, like, like I said before, we had our point of view, which, you know, in our space, it's people love this kind of like authentic storytelling you know process and i think that you know when you're doing it in the early 90s not knowing what people really think and, and having this long lead time you just did it really honest you know and i had a lot of humility going it's okay you, you can tell your story you can tell people what you're doing so it was just how it was i think people began to trust us by the way of just going you know I, we're at the same level you're not coming to me some somewhere somewhere else you're coming to me just like just like anyone would and i think that's what a big part of how we were relative to, to a lot of our customers. And, and as we are today, you know, I think we didn't have any like, oh, we shouldn't do that because that's going to happen. We kind of just did it. And, and at the end of the day, we were forgiven a lot. I, I had some really great products and I see like products that are actually still used today, but we made a lot of mistakes too. So that process was forgiven because it was somewhat accepted back then because it wasn't as quick you know, the, the aspect of today and yesterday, completely different, right? It's completely different. Sure. Mike, let's get personal on a few topics. Many aspiring entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know. I certainly didn't before starting a business. They're sort of unconsciously incompetent in certain areas, not as fully prepared as they thought they should be in starting a business. Before you started 686, to what extent were your previous skills and knowledge aligned with your task of launching an apparel brand? Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very aligned. How did your previous skills and knowledge fit with your new startup? That's a good question because if I could say that it was it was very low, meaning I would say my skill set design-wise 
was probably in the like the two two range, you know. Like, I got an idea, but I didn't know. I, I didn't know how to sketch. I can I can write on a napkin. I, I didn't really know how to use a computer. What I learned, business wise, even lower than that, right? I mean, I was going to business school and I learned, but you know, there's a different aspect of actually doing it, learning about it, and then doing it. As you know, as I grew, meaning a year into it, um, you know, speaking with people, finding, making mistakes doing it yourself. And that's one of the things that I really, really, really cherish when people actually get out there, they get their hands dirty. And because we're in Los Angeles, it was really easy to go to the garment district and find out myself. I actually had to get a pattern maker. I found that got the fabrics, got on the phone. I learned it from a really a product perspective. And I learned where my strengths were and I learned where my weaknesses were as well. So I, I really sought help for the ones that I feel like I couldn't do. Even though I was doing it, I, I needed to really have assistance in those realms. Yeah. And it's been 26 years since you started the company. And this is sort of a big question given the long history there. But what's the number one lesson you've learned since starting 686? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough question. Because- I imagine it is. <laughs> You know, one of the lessons, and I think that it's it's something I still kind of learn today is, you know, you you don't take things for face value. What that means is that everything that comes your way, a mistake, a challenge, it is a blessing in disguise. And back then, you know, sometimes you feel like you have this one major mistake, it's over. And I think that we've really utilized those mistakes to our benefit. And that's how case case study is really the opportunity to do these other businesses. When people say like, hey, wow, you've been doing this for 26, almost 27 years. I don't look at that. I, I feel like it's a great aspect, but I don't want to go, well, I've been here for that long and I deserve to be here. And, and that's not a right. That's basically something that you will work on continuing to build off and, and you have to. We, 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 work, we come today, we feel like this is our first day in business. But I think that you don't take things for face value. There's so many aspects that life leads you into this one realm, to the next realm, to something else. And you, and as you grow older, you grow wiser to really somewhat understand what that means and how that, how you can control that. It's not totally controllable, but you realize you do use it you're towards your advantage. I, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I'm curious because I was in the snow sports industries for about five years. What were your toughest times and how did you deal with those? Well... They're all mixed together because every year is somewhat difficult. You know, you know it too. Since you've been involved in yourself, you understand that if someone goes, hey, you know what? You want to actually start a company, which is hard enough. You want to actually do something in the seasonal business, which you really can't control, you know, weather. And you want to do something that actually only happens once a year and people actually – they hopefully present an argue and they hopefully pay you because it's, it's they're going to sell through your products and it's hopefully going to snow and all that kind of stuff. And then it's hopefully not going to have an issue with pricing online. All that's, all that's difficult, you know, but I think that for us, like from 92 to 2000, we did not make money. Meaning sure. it was that grind of eight years to kind of just grind and borrow money, credit cards, doing whatever we can to scrape through to get that. So I would say it was difficult, but it was probably the best times because I had no, I didn't have the responsibilities I had, meaning, you know, I didn't have the mortgage or the Bing Marion and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I compare that to the difficult times of, you know, last X many years of the, the drought, you know, and the yes. weather issues, you know, and the over inventory and, you know, everything going on in retail. That's, it's a totally different type of challenge, you know. Um, but at the same time, when I look at our financial downturn in 2008 to, you know, that time, we had our best financial years. Hmm. 
surprisingly. The reason for that is because of really our partnerships in terms of who we were partnering with. Not everywhere, the best ones, you know, and really actually the best, better snow seasons during that time, you know, and being really diligent on how we extend our terms and not going out there and growing for the sake of growing, you know, which is blows people away, you know. It was really great for us from 2008 to 2012. <laughs> That's not, um, I would not have expected that. I think a lot of people going into a new business, a consumer business, don't realize particularly the challenge of a seasonal business. Even the most uh, neutral of business ideas tend to be seasonal, and certainly a business like snow sports or outerwear is definitely seasonal. It was a challenge that I had. You know, you have half of the retailers not paying you on time, and you're spending nine months with money going out and very little time with money coming in. It's a, it's a real delicate situation. Absolutely. Mike, many entrepreneurs, including very successful ones, if you read biographies about successful business people, even they have regrets in the behaviors that they've done or certain decisions they've made early in their entrepreneurial journey. And I think many of those regrets reveal valuable lessons to aspiring entrepreneurs. I know how I have my set of regrets. Since you started 686, would you have approached the business differently if you could go back and do it over again? There's, there's certain, you know, you, you, you look at that and I, I've I learned to kind of get past those things because, you know, it's kind of what we are today. But, you know, there's a few things that kind of pop out to me where, you know, I didn't really have proper mentorship in a way that, you know, I didn't know what a mentor meant, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what is that? So, you know, I didn't really have anyone to take me underneath on wings on a realm till later. I mean, I had someone basically show me a few things, but I really wish that I would have had a more guidance in terms of the things I maybe should or should not have done. And um, that's why I say is like it was probably more forgiving back then because you could do that. Maybe maybe we could have been different if we had a little bit more, you know, um, someone to kind of show us, hey, you know, this is the process of how it works. So we didn't have to make. You know, we almost went out of business many times in the 90s. Sure. Maybe I would have went out of business because of this, but I mean, that person didn't give me another favor to take me on because I couldn't deliver or whatnot too, you know? So that would have really, really kind of hopefully kind of made me to something else. But, you know, that that's something that I realized today, you know? Like I was, you know, coming from, you know, when, when, when you're a, an owner, operator, founder, you know, you're responsible. And I think that some people just can't take it or they're, they, they want to do it, but they really can't take the responsibilities to do that stuff. I mean, you know, you're not only, you have your livelihood, but you have the people that are with you believing in that, you know, so you owe it to everyone to make that happen. So, you know, I, I think that mentorship's one, two, could we have pivoted towards more of a, you know, direct to consumer approach earlier on? Um, I think one of the challenges is uh, we're in this old school kind of buy, sell, traditional wholesale, wholesale meaning you sell to retailers, retailers that can sell to consumers. We were very, we are very loyal to our retailers, you know, because the, well, that's how we started. And that's the bulk of the business, right? Our, our products are storytelled the best, um, typically through, you know, people that know how to, to talk about the products. It's not just, hey, that jacket or pant looks cool. It's, it does the falling for you and it's made for this and does this. We put a lot of time and money and efforts into actually differentiating ourselves in the actual product. And could we have actually done it differently? Possibly. You know, we're still heavily, heavily involved in supporting our retailers, which is a good and bad situation, right? Um, good because they're 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 the ones that have 
been with you all throughout. They're the ones that speak the loudest. They're all the following. But do they all tell the same story? Do they all pay on time? Do they do good business? You know, and and that's obviously happening in retail today. Those that don't, regardless of with me or not, are going to adjust themselves, right? So maybe those are the two ones too. There's a lot more too, but you don't use those as something that you just gripe on. You go, you go. Well, what is that going to do next? And and we that's what we try to do. Yeah, Mike, as you know, starting a business is pretty unusual. And so I'm curious, what motivates a person like you, Mike West, to stop just talking about launching a business, thinking back to those early days, and you actually went out and started an outerwear company? Do you think you're a creator at heart? What do you think has actually driven you to launch a company like yours? It's interesting. Um, I, I'm not a big one on labeling. Like when we go, oh, you're an entrepreneur, or you're a businessman, you're a creator. I, I, what I like to do is I, I really, you know, that motivates me is it's, it's, it's not the monetary is probably the least amount that motivates me. It's this aspect of actually adjusting or actually educating people's uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm saying mm-hmm. that is I get off and actually f- figuring out what excites people, you know, and why. And that's kind of the core of kind of what we do and what we're, what, what I want to do in the future is really it's fashion in a day we're a fashion company because you have to work by all these things it's really aesthetics but what i really get interested in is what it really does for you does it protect you is, is there a purpose to the what you make that does that creates an experience that really hopefully changes you know the way you look at things the way you experience something to something that you didn't really know you really could do in the first place you know and that that's really for me that's like you know, we all kind of we do technical apparel that protects you from the cold, but can I do more than that? That's what really gets me going, and I, I get inspiration from other people doing it in other industries as well. Like uh, one of my biggest interests is learning how people did it their way, right? And 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 it's when you hear those things, you share a lot of those things. Like, oh wow, I went through that too. No matter how big or small they are, you can relate and how they disrupt certain industries in their way. It all starts with a similar kind of pattern, and the difference is in terms of how you really take that and you do something with that, or you you bring someone on, or you get this right timing. That that's really that that's really makes all the difference. Do you see yourself as a sort of inherently curious person, and do you think that's been a part of it as well? Yeah, I would say so. You know, the the curious part is 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 interesting because you know curiosity can lead to many different directions, right? <laughs> and, and you don't want to be ping-pogging back and forth or changing your mind. You want to be curious to the boy that, you know, you have, like I said before, you have this humility that you go, maybe I don't know it all. Maybe I still need to have an ear to listen because that is something, honestly, is easier said than done by listening because some people turn things on because of that person. They're not interested in that, but there is a point to get from anyone that has you know, their experiences, their storytelling. And, and, but you really have to kind of filter that stuff too, because it could be sometimes too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Mike, did your success surprise you? I, I don't like, here, here's, like I said before, I, when people say you're this or you're successful, like success is kind of like, success is kind of viewed in different ways, right? For me, it's, it's really this kind of barometer of like, am I happy? Are my people happy? 
And that is the most successful thing that I can ha- be excited on, you know? So it is something that we strive to do because you can be financially good, but everyone can be very, very, <laughs> very, you know, not, not feel good. So we don't want that. It's, it's a win-win when you're successful, when everyone kind of succeeds. And that, that's, uh, that can be a struggle sometimes, right? Because everyone may have a different kind of point of view, a game plan or whatever they want. And that's what we strive to do. We're, we're, we're a unit of actually more people than just what we do, than just one type of product or season. It's the people that really make the difference. Yeah, and maybe you've answered this in that with that answer, but what have been your biggest joys or what are you most proud of along your entrepreneurial journey? Well, outside the aspect of selfishly actually doing the things we get to do, travel, meet people, do things, it's it's interesting that you're going to see, you know, we all kind of grew up in this like young mentality of not knowing a lot and then really kind of giving it our all and kind of watching people grow, you know, like you like you don't have, sometimes you don't have the opportunity because you're always moving or saying things, but I, I get joys going, wow, we have people here that didn't have a family. Now they have a family and now they have the A's then. And, and, and it's a, it's a kind of way of life. Like it's just, and it's, 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 it's such a great aspect when you can do it with people that really kind of believe in it and, and, and get the same thing out of you. And that's not an easy thing. You know, when you have people here that don't want that, you know, and, 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 and as you run a business, it is just as much, you know, managing the process, the product and the people just more than ever. Does that make sense? Mm, Absolutely. Mike, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had along this journey, if at all? And how have you dealt with it? It's an interesting thing because, you know, originally coming from this kind of like shy, not that confident, a little confused, you know, when I was young, you know, to being much more, you know, like, hey, you're doing something that people actually like, you know, they're getting a response. So that that's helped that kind of self-doubt, you know, along the way. But I think that, you know, you have to have a, from my point of view, you have to have a, a slight bit of self-doubt is, is this the right thing, you know, to kind of have that, like, you know, maybe it doesn't work because there is a human aspect of everything you do. And you feel like if you're too confident in going, this is going to work because of X, Y, and Z, or we've been around this, that, I've always realized, man, the 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 ones that kind of speak the loudest sometimes really have a lot to hide. And for us, we speak the way we want to do. I mean, we we've been really consistent in the things we've done. We've been good partners, I would hope. So you know, we don't say we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and we 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 do the opposite. We but we do have to actually put a point of view out there so people believe in us. But the self doubt kind of continues internally a lot. We hopefully can be more honest with it, not only to everyone else but ourselves and that's the hardest thing is this self-doubt you kind of psych yourself out if you're if you don't admit those things you're just not not into or not good at sure and along the course of your 26 27 years what have you learned most about yourself as a business owner you know learning never stops right one of the things i just love learning is i learn something every day and i really do and i think putting yourself out there to really, really kind of take that is not easy. Some people don't want to do that. Some people are really comfortable. And I would say this is you're, you're being young is not the aspect of just looking in the mirror. It's really being the young of, of not knowing a lot. And it's okay for that. You know? And as you grow older, you feel like you need to graduate. You feel like that I know more because I've done this, I've done that. And 
I, I don't feel like you need to do that as much as you grow older. And I think that's the ones I talk to that feel that way. They have a lot more ways to, to maybe make those mistakes and bounce back or actually have a lot more successes and figure that out. I, I think that you can have this humility. You can always learn. And that leads you to the next thing. I mean, all these other ventures that you don't look for those. It, it comes to you because of the you're, you're open to those things, you know. And, and I think that's really an opportunistic way of looking at things and just being close to it. <laughs> now, it sounded like you didn't have a strong mentor opportunity early in your career or as an entrepreneur. But thinking back, who has been most influential to you? in your life, either professionally or personally? The, the personally has probably been my mother, just because, you know, you have certain people that were there supporting you no matter what unconditionally. I would not have gotten here because of her support, you know, putting everything on the line, not having much to, to where it is. I, I respect that. I respect one of my closest friends that started his own business back in the day that really um, helped kind of show me the ropes a little bit. Then he went out of business early on. Those are, the, those are the ones that helped me push a long way. My, my teacher at going to, to undergraduate at USC was just monumental in telling me that you can do something that you really, really want to do in life. Um, and then now I've been blessed to go back to school and help the same students in the same, my same position. And man, that's, that's a blessing. And I was talking to, to my manufacturer yesterday. He's like, why are you doing that? It's like, well, I, I learned as much from them as they learned from me. And, and that that's so inspirational for me. Yeah, that is great. Now, I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs or people in general don't realize that a lot of apparel companies are owned by an investment group or by a larger conglomerate or something like that. I imagine being in your business, you've had a number of opportunities in the past to sell your company. Did you have those opportunities and, and why did you choose to keep it independent? We've been, we're very proud of show we're, we're independently writer owned and operating. You mean we're there's no one else behind us telling us what to do. We've been we're probably one of the longest standings out there in, in our industry. But you know, I think that this you know you talked about the self doubt. You know, in in the turn of the millennial millennium is I had this aspect of I was like wow I I needed to I you know as an owner your name is on everything right so you have a black cloud people think you're a business owner you have you do everything but you have a black cloud above your head because you're leveraged from every single thing if something goes wrong right so I found a partner. In 2003, that that enabled me to go. Hey, you know what? We're gonna you're gonna we're gonna let you take a little money off the table that allowed me to just strictly pay off my parents for putting their whole life savings there, and allow me to go. Hey, you can you can actually do use your skill set to do something else than just uh, winter apparel. And I took the chance and I did it. I sold part of my company in 2003, and I got a partner and. It was one of the best experiences we had because we were able to come out of it, learn from them, but really we cut ties because they were having their own troubles. Um, so I got a partner from 2003 to 2008, <laughs> and um, they showed me how it was done their way. We expanded more. We doubled our company, but we didn't double our company um, profit-wise. We actually were n not profitable because – or very little profitable because of we were growing too much. We had all these other stresses of growing. Sure. So that taught us a lot, but and then we got out in 2008, and got it all back, and um, at a perfect time <laughs> with an economic downturn happened. But that was a great experience, and ever since then we just go, you know what, we're okay for right now. 
we, we, we're not trying to be the biggest. We're, we're, we're just trying to do it our way here and tr- consistently try to create new stories and ideas to really have a better experience. That's all we want, you know, right now. We don't, we're not going to go public. We don't need to do this. We, know, we just need to do good business where I think today people think you got to scale. You got to do this, you know. What this business has allowed me to do and, and hopefully everyone out here is to do what they love to do and – for us, it's I, I was able to start other businesses out of this, you know. And that was that was a, that was a blessing in disguise. So, Mike, here we are in the "Tell Me How" segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Mike, let's talk about raising capital. I think you alluded to maybe your parents supplying some of the capital you needed for your entrepreneurial activities. Did you originally raise capital for 686 and maybe Maddox? Yeah, it's it's really it's really hard to compare it to what it is because you didn't go through a C. Well, you go through you can call it angel meaning I just use I leveraged my credit cards and I leveraged my 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 parents only asset which is their house to do this seasonal aspect, right? That's not really the it's not really a way to do it. It's just scrappy entrepreneurial way to do it. But we graduated from there to doing – it's more like loan sharking <laughs> because we needed help to bridge this kind of cycle of actually getting our products and then producing and then waiting for the season to happen. So that was kind of really a difficult part like in your gambling everything to going, hey, here, here you go. We'll loan you the money. You guys got the orders. We'll loan you the money and you got to pay us back. By this date or else, right? So we graduated from that to factoring, which is essentially you know you, they take your accounts receivable uh, of the orders and then they, you loan it off a percentage of that to traditional bank bank financing. We didn't need a raise, or we didn't. I didn't know the aspect of raising back then. And actually, if I would have had too much money, I wouldn't know what to do with it. And that's why you know a lot of a lot of businesses back then in the '90s. The business was booming, so you have people that wanted to give you money as a deposit to help produce your product, um, which is insane. You know, they would go, "Hey, I like your stuff," and they would see a sample and they would give you a 50% deposit. You go and make the products, and they give you 50% when you ship. Well, what happened back then is a lot of people just took the money and run, and and the whole business kind of the industry just just fell. So we went through all cycles of that. We didn't have to raise money. Um, when we acquired other businesses, we had you know acquisition loans, but we did it all internally. I, my style is I don't want to be heavily in debt. You know, just there's enough risk of actually purchasing products, making products before you have to actually you know get paid. <laughs> right. That was the way. Let's switch gears a little bit, Mike, and especially in the apparel industry. How did you find a manufacturer for six eight six? Especially getting into that really technical outerwear stuff. I imagine maybe you started locally there in Southern California, or maybe you went to China right away. Tell us more about that. That was a that's the, probably the defining moment in our business. That when you look back, and there's a few of them. Um, it was really our manufacturer support um, in the very beginning. You know, knowing this, you're not making a T-shirt. You put your logo on it. It's a really strenuous kind of cut and sew activity. I learned it firsthand, drying it, doing it in L.A., getting fabrics, you know, from different parts of the country. It's all U.S. made. Then I went to actually taking that mentality and take going to Mexico because it's really close to here, hmm. which didn't work, you know. Um, and to quickly going to offshore where I found um, they found me of all places close to 25 years ago, um, and we're still with them today. If you look at talk to anyone in business for more than 10 years or even 20 years. 
there's these defining moments that really you didn't know back then, but you know now how important they were. And when we found or our, our manufacturer found us, um, he, he showed me basically how it was done in terms of back then you really go, well, I'm going to make a product and I'm actually going to create a pattern, a design. I'm going to make a pattern. I'm going to buy fabrics. I'm going to buy my trims, toggles, zippers, put my label on it, go to a manufacturer, have them cut it and have them sew it. And then hopefully everything comes around and then I got to pay him and then bring it back. And then I hopefully got to ship it on time and hopefully it's going to snow. And hopefully that ship it to them and hopefully they're going to pay me. The process is just too risky, right? It's done today, but we go, hey, one, to make technically superior products, you need to fine tune this process. You need to have the best products, the best people, the best skill set, and you really need to pay them ideally one price. So we didn't, when you pay different parts of that stuff, there's all different parts of risk. So right now, Obviously, it's one price of everything we do. We put it back to – and we have a buying office in, in Taiwan. So we have an office there that does all this together, and we purchase it all as one FOB from here. Um, so it, the risk is still there, but it's all quarantined to one professional site that does it all in Asia. And did that manufacturer, that manufacturer partner, I imagine that they were doing outerwear production for other brands domestically as well or in Europe? Yeah, they, they – Back then, there was um, they had some correct, but there and it was interesting because they were kind of in the same position as us that that they, they were just starting right. So we came at the same time, and we were worked together. Um, they had definitely more experience than me, but you know, going to Asia, it's it our what we do now. It's what probably one of the most intense skill set precision kind of workmanship you need because you know it's it's really it's so many different parts outside the construction process. The fabrications, right, and the laminations, and how it works, the chemical process, making sure you're responsible that way, and how it all reacts together. They do others, but um, you know, our buying office. When I say buying office, we have we, so we have an office in Taiwan that um, they purchase all the fabrics and everything on our behalf, and they have factory relationships that produce the stuff, right? So it's one central office. They also do other as well. But it's not in the direct competition as us. But it's pretty normal that people do that stuff too, and everything's confidential. But we know what we're doing over there, more or less. Yeah. And do you have any one key piece of advice for people considering the soft goods industry on how to find the right manufacturing partner? Um, so many different ways. You can obviously look it online, but I really, really, really recommend you go in there. So you don't do everything remotely. You go there. And you learn it yourself because there's so many ways that people can say, hey, we do this, we do that. And they're just a front. They're a broker. They're something else, you know, which is fine, you know, because and you have people here that can actually go, we'll do everything for you here. You're just going to pay for it, which is fine because you can it's a, it's a learning process, too. That's how we started. And then we just created, you know, efficiencies and we did it direct. That, that's what we do. Sure. Mike, let's shift gears and talk about selling the product to retailers. Early on, how did you learn to do that, or what were those first approaches like? Very archaic, um, but very homegrown in a way that we all did ourselves. Um, and I think that our business, meaning this quote-unquote outdoor action sports, it's very first-person, very passionate. You know, we, we don't wear coat and ties. You know, we are in the, we are we do the sport ourselves. Whether it's hiking, camping, skiing, we do that, right? So, so the retailers themselves are the same, and they appreciate that. So. We, we did a lot of like 
we're on the road a lot, so we're going to show you our products, not at the trade show. We're showing you actually, we're going to your store. We're traveling with our bags and doing everything, and we're showing basically what we did and how we did it, and we're speaking that same language. That's how we started. Now it's somewhat done the similar, but they, they have obviously showrooms, and the retailer comes to you, they go to trade shows. But I think that's what really kind of gets the miles. That's what people appreciate, that you really are out there. The ones that know what's up aren't the ones that sit behind the desk. They're the ones that are out there on the road. And we really had to do that. Um, that made the difference. Yeah, and I imagine if you were getting some traction with retail in Southern California, that could be a key influence to other retailer doors across the country, whether that be Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, or even New York or Idaho. Yeah, it could and it couldn't because a lot of, there's a stigma with Southern California, like especially California in general, you guys are this, you guys are that, you know, but most people don't think we're actually from Los Angeles. They think we're from the Pacific Northwest, the Rockies, mm. uh, just because of what we've been doing. But we've been very open that we use this kind of city urban kind of inspiration mixed with the mountain environment. So, you know, there's influential retailers throughout the nation, throughout the world, right? And you really quickly get to know why they're influential. And I think that, and, and that's, you know, because retail's challenging, but the ones that do it really well, they do it well for a reason. And they're not just selling products, they're creating stories. And that's something that you have to realize is retail is your, retail is your partner. You want to work with these guys. If they can tell a story, you're on the same page and they can pay, yeah, they're great. And, and realize the difference from those guys that are good and those guys maybe that they're doing it a different way. And I think that's really, really important starting off for sure. And, and, and have a point of view. I mean, some people will say, hey, I'll, I'll take your stuff, but put it on wheels, meaning I'll put it on consignment. So you give it to me for free and whatever I sell, I'll pay you. I, I really, for us, we avoid that because one, it's like, I want I want the retailer to have skin in the game too. I want them to make sure that they they have to sell this. You know, They don't have not have to sell it because I don't have to pay for it. Let them, let them do that. Some people don't agree with that. You might need to, you might need to, Get in the door that way because you need to prove yourself. We, we didn't do it that way. Another critical part to making a business succeed is having the right gross margins and the profit margins to uh, make enough money and setting the price. How did you go about setting the price for your product early on? And what would you recommend for others getting into the soft goods industry? Well, I'll tell you how we did it back then. I'll tell you how we do it now. Meaning, you know, back then it was very simple to the way is. Do we have money left over to eat? <laughs> sure, know? absolutely. Which which wasn't that much. We didn't need that much. And we didn't have a lot of areas of um, – it was really simple. But that quickly kind of dissipated when you have all these other expenses and what you have to show the bank and all this other stuff. So you know, it, it's interesting because there's industry norms of your, your starting margin and you know everything else like that. And what looks good on paper may not actually happen at the very end of the day. So you have to take into consideration of that. Industry average is in typical apparel is is a fifty percent start margin. What that means is, you know, it's going to cost you a certain amount to produce it over there. It's going to cost you an amount to bring it in over here. There's some factors you got to take in consideration. That say, for example, something costs fifty dollars to get at your doorstep, and typically in the apparel markets and soft goods, not accessories or you know hard goods, is you want to keystone that and you want to double that margin so if it's fifty dollars on our doorstep you want to sell for a hundred dollars which the retailer in turn sells it for two hundred dollars now that's a typical kind of markup but what happens is there's a lot of factors that that come into play that you have to pay from that 
markdowns that the retailer comes back and tells you that they need they need discounts and all that kind of stuff. So it depends. Some people have it higher. Some people have it lower. We have traditionally been um, around there, and I think that's part of one of the basic importance of any financial responsibility is making sure that your cost of goods are in line because you can, as you grow and scale, you can really influence your, your cost of goods, not by honestly how much it costs you to make the products, but how efficient you are to bring the products in here. Mm-hmm. There's a mistake. There's insurance. There's all these other things that happen. You're airing the stuff instead of shipping by seat, right? No one sees that stuff, but that affects your cost of goods heavily, which affects your margin. So very be very very cautious of that if you're a direct consumer your margins are you should be much better than that you know we may get a start margin the very best at 50 percent but if we're selling direct to consumer our margins are in the 70 80 percent range so you know it depends where you want to be but you also have to play that game of your your margin may be 75 percent direct to consumer but you're going to have to also spend to get that so it, it's it's not necessarily better one way or another it's just more what's right for you yeah, and let's broaden the conversation a little bit more into marketing in general or more specifically creating awareness for your product and demand for your product. Most startups and small businesses have very small marketing budgets. How did you or how are you now even creating consumer awareness and demand for your product? I always say it's easy to get the product in the store but it's more difficult to create demand for your product to have people go in and buy it off the shelf. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think for us, uh, you, we have an expectation you, do it, you have to do it at multiple levels. You, know? you, you may have that one like, yeah, they bought it, but it's the sell-through that really is important because you need to work off great sell-through for retail specifically to get that out there. So you, you know, you're looking at basically in point-of-sale items that really – present your product well. We've always looked at basically is, hey, once the retailer pulls a product out of the box, it's self-explanatory. And we've done that ways of actually having, you know, hangers, custom hangers to our hang tags. I, I really take our hang tags really religiously because I want to show the story, what we're about, why this is superior. So point of sale items to, to everything else outside this from athletes, social media, advertising, different types of advertising. But what we really kind of made these other points of differences for us is partnerships, collaborations, you know. So, you know, our, our that was an external facing change where, you know, in the early 2000s, we go, hey, you know, we just don't want to make stuff that a black jacket like, like everyone else. We want to tell a story of why our stuff has what we're about, why this is different. So initially how we started was working with artists who are essentially our friends as creative culture to bring their artwork inside our, our products. And we worked with world-renowned artists that are today that weren't there back then to grow, hey, you do your cool artwork in here, I can tell your story. It's like a, it's in a, and it's like a rotating art show across the world because they can hear see your stuff. That was kind of revolutionary back then. It's not so much now. That transition to working with you know other companies, brands, and personalities to bring their story in our winter realm. For example, that you know, that's probably our most successful is we worked with, with Levi Strauss to go, I had this concept of like, and this is understanding the market as well, is back then premium denim was going off, but the classics like Levi's was kind of struggling. But I knew after all the shininess and premium kind of embroidery things, that was going to go away. <laughs> So I knew the classics were coming back. I, I approached Levi's, the godfather of denim, to go, hey, I want to 
I want to take your what you guys do and winterize this in a way that makes it unique. So I created this waterproof denim. We did it here, um, and we we produced what what weatherized waterproof denim over 10 years ago. That opened our door to a lot of people. Just more more the image wise. Oh my God, you guys are working with Levi's or and expand our, our customer base, expanding our, our product knowledge, expanding our business knowledge because it was pretty insane. And that kind of led to other quote unquote collaborations, which is not new, but we take this and we get more deeper into the technical functional elements than just purely making it look good. Yeah. When you were doing the Levi's thing, I was just blown away. I was really impressed and it elevated you to a level that really made people look and take notice. So Mike, tell us about Westwell. What's going on with that? Yeah, so we had another product that was like one of the like defining moments is it's um thing called the tool belt. So it was over 20 years ago. We created this aspect of just when we were writing, we're like, hey, why, why do you have to have all these tools? Why do you have people have tools to change your binding? So we go, why don't you just wear it? So we created this thing called the tool belt. So the whole concept was, was a belt that had tools in it, but the tools looked really reflected of a traditional belt. So it didn't look like a tool on your belt. And that whole concept, we got it patented, and it lasted 20-plus years of people saying that this really changed our lives, not only in snowboarding or skiing, it changed our lives in actually daily wear. We have so many testimonials. We go, hey, there's we had a nerve that there's a functional purpose in having just the right amount of tools, quote-unquote, to get you through wherever you are. So we took that concept, and we're spinning it off to something completely different than action outdoor sports tour more purposeful accessories and our tagline is find your solution so it's this modern approach to wearable products namely belts to start with that have components tools that do certain things and it's not an inspector gadget it's not over the top it's really minimal modern and somewhat innovative in the way actually you work with the products themselves and we're excited that we're also using that towards more of a digital first perspective, meaning we're not going to utilize our wholesale retail kind of networks. We're going to start from scratch and talk to the consumer directly, be very transparent in this process. I'm excited because, one, this is kind of new for us, you know, but I'm excited because we we're able to use our experience and our know-how to do something kind of completely different, not bound by weather, not bound by all the things that we're bound, bound by in just winter to do something completely new. We may fail, but we're, we're, we're going to give it our best shot, and we're, we're stoked on that newness. Yeah, and when can we expect to have access to that as a consumer? We're going to officially launch, I think, July, early July. We're going to tell the story. We're going to have ambassadors. You're going to see it first digital, and we're not trying to be everywhere. you know. And it's taking a little more of a premium point of view. So it'll be different. Uh, it won't be for everyone. But it's going to be for men, particularly at first, and then we're going to really pivot towards a women-female perspective story. You know, So look out for it. Yeah, very exciting. I look forward to that. Finally, Mike, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? As, as an entrepreneur, you know, I think that don't get caught up in the aspects of um, being the guy or making success happen you know i think that putting yourself out there and maybe going out and learning at first hand is okay you will never be ready and everything set to go you have to be ready but you won't have everything perfect so 
I would have never been able to be where I'm at without taking a chance. And you will give excuses to yourself about why you can't do it. But if you want to try it, try it. And if you don't, it's fine. It's not for everyone. Believe me, there's so much pressure right now to be that that guy. You don't need to. But give it a try if you want to. Mike, this has been a real joy for me. You've been a fantastic guest offering great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us today. Great, John. I appreciate the time, man. And anytime, I'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.